vision for what that kingdom was going to look like exactly. If you talk to the Pharisees, their vision of the kingdom of God was God is going to send his man, he's going to destroy these Roman occupiers, and he's going to tell us how great we are, and he's going to put us in power. That was their hope, that was their expectation. If you were just a regular, run-of-the-mill Jew, you were hoping for consolation to come from God. I mean, your people had had a land, they had had a king, they had prospered, but then due to sin, they had been, they'd been judged. And as a result, they were being occupied by these Roman people. But they were also struggling with this reality of sin. And so if you were in that day, you would have had different views of what the good news of the coming kingdom would be. To use language that's maybe a little more uh, familiar to us, we could say, everyone in the world, if you said, would you rather go to heaven or hell? Everyone would say heaven. But not everyone agrees what heaven's going to be. And that's what's really important because I want us to see that the Sermon on the Mount, if nothing else, it's meant for, for us to get a vision for what the nature of the kingdom of God really is. When Jesus is going to preach the Sermon on the Mount, you have to take it in its full context. You don't want to just grab individual phrases. You have to see it as a whole. And one of the things Jesus is doing, he's trying to reorient people towards a proper vision and understanding of what the kingdom of God actually is. Secondly, he's trying to make it very clear what the character of the citizens of the kingdom of God must be. You see that very clearly in the specifics of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what a person who's a citizen of the kingdom of God will look like. And if you are looking at what Jesus says about the kingdom of God or what the character of a person who's a citizen of the kingdom of God should be, if you're looking at that and you're saying, well, I don't like that. I don't agree with that. Well, then you have no part in the kingdom of God. You have no part in what God is doing. But for those who have had their eyes opened by the work of the Holy Spirit, they see what God is offering through Christ and they say, that's what I want. Maybe I couldn't put words to it before, but Jesus, as you're speaking, as you're painting this picture, that's what I want. And so if you were sitting there and you were a a humble person who recognized the extent of your sin, all the words that Christ was speaking was great news. But it doesn't end up being good news for everyone, depending on what your posture is towards God. Now, as I mentioned, there's a danger in taking individual statements from the Sermon on the Mount and just making them absolute and taking them out of context. There's a huge danger in that. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote a book about Sermon on the Mount. He points out a number of things that we need to know about the Sermon on the Mount. For one, all Christians are to be like this. The picture you get in the Sermon on the Mount, this is for all Christians. It isn't just for the select few who want to be super spiritual. It applies to all Christians. All Christians are meant to display all of the characteristics talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. It isn't just, okay, well, I'm really good with the mourning part. I'm really good with the poor part, but the meek part, not so much. If we are being worked on by the Holy Spirit, all these things will be true of us. None of these descriptions refer to a natural tendency or temperament. We can falsely define the things that Jesus talks about. It's just saying, well, that's his temperament. Yeah, the reason why that guy is meek, he's just really laid back. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The things that Jesus is outlining are possible only by work of the Holy Spirit. It is not a natural tendency. And the last point that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, says these descriptions indicate the essential differences between Christian and non-Christian. 
What you see in the Sermon on the Mount is a clear picture, a general broad stroke picture of this is what a citizen of the kingdom of God looks like. This is what a Christian looks like. And if we have our eyes open by faith, we look at this and we say, that's what I want to be. That's what I want Jesus to do in my heart and in my life. Now, I said that Jesus is not only trying to get us to understand a picture of the character of the citizens of the kingdom, but that this, even this idea of kingdom of God, it, it probably seems foreign to, to many of us. Now, the kingdom of God is a, a specific term that shows up in the Old Testament, and specifically in the book of Daniel, the kingdom of God is talked about a lot. Also, if you have read through the Gospels, you know that there's a title that Jesus likes for himself, and it's the Son of Man. A lot of times we dismiss that and say, oh, that's just referring to Jesus' humanity. Actually, it's a statement of his divinity. In the Old Testament, there's, it was understood that the kingdom of God was going to come into the world and destroy every power that resists God's rule. One way I talk about the kingdom of God is, think of it this way, it's the visible rule of God. God is sovereign. I'm sure most of the people in, the, in this room would, would agree with that. God is a sovereign God. But we don't see in practice everything happening the way that God would intend it, or the way we would think God would want it to take place. We see sin. We see evil. We see bad things happening. And that's what makes us wrestle with that question. If God is sovereign and God is good, how do we make sense of the world in front of us? But the Old Testament kind of gives us this picture that, yes, while there are these global powers, while there are these forces of evil that are holding control of the world, the day is going to come where the kingdom of God is going to come in like a massive rock. It's going to destroy everything that builds itself up against God. And that rock, that kingdom of God, will grow to envelop the entire world. And the Son of Man is the one God appoints to make sure this happens. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it says this. Daniel sees this vision. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man is the one who is appointed by God to bring the kingdom of God to our world to make sure that God visibly reigns, that everything is under the dominion of Christ and everything functions exactly the way that God intended it to. But going on from there, in verse 27 of Daniel chapter 7, it says this, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So not only is this son of man going to bring in the kingdom of God, but he's also going to hand this kingdom over to those who are his people. They are going to co-rule with him, so to speak. And that's our hope as Christians, that Jesus Christ is going to come into this world, just as he did at the first coming, and his kingdom now is growing. It's spreading. And so if you ask the question, does the kingdom of God exist yet? The answer is yes and no. The kingdom of God is here. It is a place where God visibly rules, but not completely yet. And think for a moment, where is it that Christ is supposed to visibly rule? It starts in the church. It starts in the hearts of individual believers. Those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, Christ now is their Lord. 
He rules there. He's calling the shots. He's making changes. And as more and more people come to faith, the kingdom of God is spreading. That's the vision. So just a number of things I want to point out specifically about the Son of Man is the Son of Man is the God-man sent from heaven. The Jews in Jesus' day fully understood that. And I'm going to point out a scripture that that makes it very clear. It is a God-man. It is a claim to deity to be called the Son of Man in the Gospels. Furthermore, the Son of Man will establish the kingdom of God, he will destroy the enemies of God, and he will vindicate and save the people of God. The Son of Man is going to sit in judgment over the entire world. Everyone is going to have to stand before him and give an account of how they lived. Now what's interesting about this is in Mark's gospel, when Jesus is arrested, when Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, the the, the ruling religious leaders in Israel's day who hated him, what's interesting is this is what is said about him. And this is Mark 14, verses 61 through 64. Jesus being questioned and interrogated by the Pharisees, and this is what it says. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. What's amazing about this picture is that Jesus Christ is essentially saying, I'm the one who's going to judge every single human being who will ever live. Yeah, Pharisees, you might have me right now, and I might be submitting to your judgment. But at the end of time, you're going to stand before me, and I'm going to be the judge. And that's what enrages this high priest so much. That's why he tears his clothes. It's it's a great insult for Jesus to say this. But what I want us to see is that this is an example of meekness. And that's what we're talking about this morning. What does it mean to be meek? Jesus gives a perfect example of meekness. And so the call for us to be meek is a call to follow after Christ. For us to resist this is to resist the will of God and to say, no, we don't want to have any part in what Jesus is doing. The kingdom of God and the Son of Man, this is all the backdrop for the Sermon on the Mount. Understanding what God is doing in this world, what his plan is, where all of human history is going. That's the the vision behind the kingdom of God. And the Son of Man is the one who makes it happen. If you want a piece and a part of participating in the kingdom of God, you need to be connected with the Son of Man. You need to be following after him. And so when Jesus is giving this sermon on the, on the mount, he is giving a picture. This is what I'm doing, and this is what it's going to mean to follow after me. Jesus being very upfront with people. If you want to follow me, if you want to be a Christian, this is what life is going to look like. This is where things are heading. And there are people who will follow after Jesus so long as it's convenient for them. But when things get rough, they're like, well, this is my off-ramp. I've gone with you this far, but nope, this is my stop. This is my exit. And one of the perfect examples of that is Judas Iscariot. Judas was one of the 12. He's going along with Jesus the whole way. While the crowds were big, the money was coming in, while their influence seemed great, and while his expectation was that they were going to take over Israel and things were going to be good, he would be on top As long as that was so, Judas was like, I'll stick with Jesus. But near the end, when Jesus started saying things like, no, the time has come for me to die, and the same is going to happen to you. You're not greater than I am. A servant is not greater than his master. master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. 
If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. At that point, that's when Judas says, I'm out. I'm leaving. I'm going to sell Jesus out to the Pharisees. I'll, I'll join sides with them. And so Jesus wants us to get a clear picture up front. This is what God is doing. And this is what it's going to mean to follow after Christ. Jesus isn't doing anything in fine print. He's not trying to get us to sign on to being a Christian and then later on say, oh yeah, by the way, this is what it's going to mean to follow me. Right off the bat, this is the beginning of Christ's preaching ministry. Right off the bat, he says, this is what it's going to look like. And so it's important for us to take that into account when it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are the ones who are going to receive this kingdom from Christ. The meek are the ones who are going to be reigning with Christ forever, looking to him and being grateful and enjoying it. That's the picture here. So the main idea I want to stress today is this. If we want to enjoy and participate in the kingdom of God, we must embrace meekness just as Jesus Christ did. If we want to enjoy and participate in the kingdom of God, we must embrace meekness just as Jesus Christ did. Now you might be tracking with me so far. You might be saying, okay, at least in theory, that sounds good to me. I I can get on board with that. But it begs the question, okay, what is meekness? And so my sermon today is real simple. I mean, it's just three, three points. You know, what is meekness? A few comments about what meekness is not. And then finally, how do we cultivate meekness in ourselves? If meekness matters, we need to be convinced that we need to cultivate that in ourselves because it doesn't come naturally. So first of all, what is meekness? There, there are a lot of things I'm going to say about it, but one kind of angle to think about meekness is this. Meekness is restraining the legitimate use of strength and power for the sake of the big picture. That's one way I would talk about it. When Jesus Christ was standing before the Sanhedrin and they're accusing him, they're persecuting him, presuming to sit in judgment over their maker, Jesus would have been completely justified in saying, you're dead. How dare you talk to your maker that way? How dare you presume to sit in judgment over me when I'm the one who's going to sit in judgment over you? But think if Christ had done that. If Christ had not submitted to the judgment and the persecution and the unrighteousness of these men, every single person in this room would be on their way to hell. Because if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, he doesn't pay for our sins, and we still bear them. And so even though Jesus had every right to come and say, you worship me here and now, if he had done that and he had come only one time instead of two, If Jesus Christ only came one time and said, okay, time to take account. Time for you to answer how you've lived before me. Everyone would have been condemned. There would have been no one to save. And so because of that, Jesus Christ had the big picture in mind. The Father sent him to earth with a mission. I've given you a people, and I'm sending you to earth to save that people. And so even though Jesus would have been completely justified in pushing back his own death, and pushing back the persecution, he submitted to it because it was for the sake of the big picture, for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of having a people to save. And if we're going to follow after Christ, we have to have that same mindset in mind. People who are constantly invested in defending themselves, making sure everyone knows they're right, everyone knowing how great you are, people who are invested in that don't do so well with meekness. You, You just are not able to do that because you're constantly being distracted. The other thing I want to point out is meekness is a God-given posture. It's a matter of the heart. 
It's a disposition to look at people and not be consumed first and foremost with vindicating yourself, but saying, I've got the big picture in mind. I'm here on a mission. And if I have to endure some heartache, if I have to endure injustices, so be it for the sake of the big picture. Think of it this way. It's not simply what we believe as Christians that matters, but it's also how we say it. When we talk to the world around us, the way we speak, our posture towards people, the way we treat them, that in and of itself is a statement. And God is saying, I want my people to share my disposition, to share my posture. I want you to be such a person that you're able to speak clearly and definitively about truth about God, but do so in a way that is not needlessly offensive. Uh, kind of thinking again about the election. I've, I like listening to talk radio. I like reading articles online. And it's frustrating because there's so many times where I'll listen to someone or read someone where I agree with what they're saying, but the way they're saying it makes me wish I didn't. I wish, I'm like, I really wish I could be opposed to you right now just because I think you're such a jerk. And it's, we, as Christians, we can't have that posture. When we're talking to non-Christians, the people who have different opinions, people who are living in legitimate sin, we need to speak truth in such a way that, yes, our position is clear, but at the same time, it's not our posture that's offensive. And we all know how different that is. If you have ever wronged someone and you need to go and apologize, you know, there, there are different types of people you come to. There's some people who make it really easy to apologize to, and there are other people who not so much. You come to them and, you know, they're giving you the silent treatment. They won't make eye contact with you. They're very slow to say anything. And you just, it's just painful to try to apologize. But there are other people where as soon as you're apologizing, it's like their arms are wide open. They're like, all right, I forgive you. No big deal. It's like your posture matters. And meekness is a matter of posture. It's a matter of the way we hold the truth. And as I said, it's a matter of the heart. A meek person is someone who knows God. They're grounded in who God is. They're secure. They're stable. They know who they are. They know where they stand with God. A meek person trusts in God. He's will, they believe that God is willing and able to do everything that he promised. The New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ went to the cross because for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, bearing its shame and despi- or despising its shame. He was able to do that because Jesus saw past the cross. He could see, I see the joy at the other end. I know my father has a plan. I know what my father's going to do. And even though the cross is on the way, and I have to go through that in order to get to what my father's promised, I believe my father's going to do what he promised. And as Christians, that's what enables us to endure hardship now. That's what enables us to let our own vindication go for a time. Because we know this story ends with us standing before Christ. And yes, people around us might not believe what's true about us. We may have been slandered. We may not have received what was due. But at the end of time, we are going to stand before Christ. And everyone is going to receive their just retribution. Everything is going to work out because God is in control. And if if we're built on that foundation, knowing that what God is both willing and able to do what he promised, that's going to enable us to be meek. We're not always in this frenzy trying to make sure we get what is our due. But this is a God-given gift. A meek person waits on God. They don't insist on their own way, their own timing. That's a hard one. 
I mean, I'll be the first one to admit this is a really difficult one for me, being patient and waiting on God. I've always got a bunch of plans. I know five years out, this is how I think things should work. But being a meek person means saying, okay, God is in control. I don't have to rush things. I can wait on him. A meek person boasts in God. They don't boast in themselves. They are consumed with making sure the spotlight stays on God. They're not making sure everyone knows every great thing they've done or everyone knows how smart they are or how much money they have or how popular they are. They're not consumed with that. A meek person, it isn't that they think lowly of themselves, but they are more concerned with putting the spotlight on God than anything else. And that's what enables them to endure slander. That's what enables them to endure hardship and not get everything that they wanted. Because they're saying, it's all about making sure God is the focus. That's the mission. That's the focus. A meek person desires above all else that other people would know God because they know that's the only thing that's ultimately going to save anybody. Meek people aren't concerned with just winning every single argument they're in or making sure they're winning people over to their viewpoint on politics, sports, whatever it may be. But they're saying the main thing is that people know God. And whatever I can do to to put down barriers, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to lay that down for the sake of people knowing God. Meekness requires humility. Meekness requires confidence. And you know, you say, well, aren't those two kind of contradicting one another? A meek person is humble but yet confident. A humble person isn't concerned about the spotlight being on themselves, but a confident person knows who they are. They don't have anything to prove. They're not trying to to make sure everyone knows how great they are. That frees them up. A confident person is free to praise the success of other people. Someone who's insecure is worried about credit going to someone else because they're worried that person might look better than they are. But a meek person says, I know who I am. I know what God has given me to do. I know how God has gifted me. And I know how God has not gifted me. And I'm okay with that. Because I am with God. I'm a part of his kingdom. And that's all that matters. But that's something that only the Holy Spirit is able to work in you. Furthermore, a confident person is able to be compassionate towards towards the failings of others. A confident person doesn't look at someone's failings as an opportunity to say, see, look how much better I am than that person. But a confident person says, hey, you know what? If not for the grace of God, I would be in the same situation as you are. Let me come alongside you. I hope you're seeing that through all of this, a meek meek person is an approachable person. It's someone who's safe. It's not that they're wishy-washy. It's not that they're indecisive. It's not that they're not clear but there's a, a quiet confidence about them. It lets them be approachable. Think of what Jesus Christ, those who were aware of their own sin and were aware of their own shortcomings and their own rebellion against God, they wanted to be near Christ. But think of the people who didn't want to be near him, the people who hated him, the people who wanted to kill him. It was the self-righteous, the people who weren't willing to look at their own sin, the people who are worried about missing out, the people who are thinking that when God comes, he's going to come and he's going to tell everyone how great I am. That was the hope of the Pharisee. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but there is that heart, that sinful desire inside of each and every one of us. We want to be exalted. And that's why this is a work of the Holy Spirit that only by his grace that we come to the point where we can say, no, it's not about me. It's not about making me look great. 
If it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be lost. I would be in hell. And now my God calls me to follow after his appointed servant who's bringing in his kingdom, the son of man. As we understand what Christ has done, that should be our goal, to pursue after him. So just a few comments about what meekness is not. You know, there's a saying that meekness is not weakness. It's not that you're just a pansy. It's not that you don't have an opinion. It doesn't mean you're a pushover. It doesn't mean you're indifferent. It doesn't mean you avoid confrontation at all costs. Think of Jesus Christ, that the time that he dug in his heels and would not yield was when the name of God was on the line, when the reputation and understanding of who God was was on the line. When Jesus goes into the temple and he sees all the, the debauchery going on there, all this selling, all this, where all these people were taking advantage of people's desire to worship God and they're making a profit, all of it. Jesus comes in and it says, by the power of the Spirit, he takes a bunch of whips or he takes a bunch of cords, he creates a whip and he drives out the entire place. Jesus was still meek when he did that. Jesus is always meek. But he was furious because he said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. So Jesus wasn't fighting for his own name in a sense there. He was fighting for the name of his father. Christians are at their best when they are more concerned with the glory of God than they are with their own glory. As they're pushing into that and making sure that's where the focus is. Meekness is not a matter of temperament, though. And I think that's a really important thing because there's a a tendency for us to think that a meek person is just someone who's really laid back. They're just really nice. Never get upset. Never going to confront you. You know, you can tell them anything and they're going to find some way to say something nice. But that's not the posture of meekness. A meek person wants what's ultimately best for you. They want you to know God. And sometimes that means speaking to sin. But again, the way they're going to speak to it is going to be affected by their posture. The way they talk to you about sin, it's going to be sounding like someone who wants to come alongside you and help you, not someone who's saying, hey, here's the line. If you want to be as great as me, come across. Those are two very different postures. But we have to have that fixed in mind. So we've seen how, you know, what meekness is. We've talked a little bit about what meekness is not. But now I want to talk about how do we cultivate meekness? Because again, it's not something natural to any of us. No one is naturally meek. We might be naturally indifferent. We might not care about the right things. We might just want people to like us. All that might be true, but that's not meekness. So how do we cultivate it? I can't stress enough that meekness is a work of the Holy Spirit. And we see that immediately with Jesus Christ. You know, Matthew 5 shows up in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And that which means there are four chapters that lead up to it. And all of this is stressing that for one, that Jesus is the Son of Man. He's coming to bring the kingdom of God. And as such, we're supposed to look to him. And when you look at Christ, notice some of the key points of of his life. First, Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. That happened in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Jesus gets baptized. Now, it's not baptism in the same function as we do baptism day. It was a baptism of repentance. But it was the Holy Spirit coming on Jesus at that point in time to uniquely empower him to be the Son of Man in the the mission of what he was doing. Jesus was always fully God. He became a man. But the Holy Spirit uniquely came upon him and anointed him for his mission, for his purpose. And right after his baptism, the Holy Spirit drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. 
So the Holy Spirit comes upon Christ. It anoints him, and, and God declares, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's at that point we're supposed to know that this is significant. This is a starting point for Jesus. Everything he's going to do is going to be by power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus chose to make himself fully man. He purposely put himself in a situation where he had access to no resources other than the same that we would have by the Holy Spirit as well. The same Holy Spirit that came upon Christ is the same Holy Spirit that he gives to us now. And it started with his baptism, where Jesus took on the posture and said, the sins of all the people, because it was a baptism of repentance, Jesus was basically saying, your problem, I am now making my problem. I'm not a sinner. I'm not, I don't have need to repent, but Jesus said, I'm going to submit to baptism to identify with my people because I want to come alongside them and I want to help fix their problem of sin. I'm the only one who can do it. So at his baptism, Christ is taking this posture of saying, I'm coming alongside my people. I'm identifying with my people. I'm making their problem mine because I'm the only one who can fix it. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him to anoint him for that purpose so that he would be able to be that for us. Think of the contrast. You know, if we are only functioning in the power of our own strength, in the flesh, Romans 8.13 says it, Very well. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you live in your own strength, if you live according to what's wise in your own eyes, it's going to end in death. Separation from God. But if, as God speaks to you, as he gives you his word, as he works by his spirit, and you realize, okay, I don't want to just live according to what's wise in my eyes. I want to submit to God. God says, as you do that, my spirit's going to work in you. And that sin is going to be pulled out. That toxin is going to be pulled out. And you're going to grow in your health with God. You're going to grow in your love for God. Your affections will change. And more and more, the thought of heaven, the thought of the kingdom of God will become better and better and better. We're going to see life with God as good news and as what we want. Someone who's meek, or how, uh, another way that meekness is cultivated is by keeping the big picture in mind. Having this vision of the kingdom of God. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4, time and time again, Satan came at Jesus with very specific lies. He came at Jesus first to attack his identity. He came and and attacked whether or not God would protect him. And ultimately, he came and attacked Jesus and said, listen, if you want to rule the whole world, no need to follow your father's plan because we know that's going to get messy for you. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give it all to you. Jesus doesn't ever say to him, you don't have the authority to do that. By all accounts, Satan Satan is the God of this world, and he had the ability to do that. But Jesus said no, because that's not wise in the the grand scheme of things. Sin always makes sense if you're short-sighted. When you're in line at Chick-fil-A, and you're trying to decide, do I go with the superfood side, which is full of kale and broccoli and healthy things, or do I go with the large waffle fries? Like, In the moment, that's not a difficult call to make. But when you're thinking about cholesterol, when you're thinking about your heart, when you're thinking about overall health, well, now the picture changes, doesn't it? Sin always makes sense in the short term. But if you're able to step back, and that's thing, Satan wants you to be narrow-sighted. He wants you to just look at this one thing. Don't think about consequences. Don't think about tomorrow. I mean, think of college students. This is like their governing principle. Just think about right now. I mean, that's usually how it works out. But if you can step back 
And you can see the big picture. In light of creation, in light of where God says this world is going, there's a certain way of living that makes sense. And even in our text saying that the blessed are the meek, that means those who are meek are happy. When God is putting out this new way of living and saying, this is how you are to be happy. This is how you're going to be joyful when you live according to God's design. When you have the big picture in mind. Sin sounds great in the short term, but in the end it's going to kill you. No one would give in to sin if they really believed this one act is going to doom me forever. No one would do that. But we keep thinking, well, this little sin isn't that bad. This little sin isn't that bad. Before you know it, we're just infected completely. And we've lost all control. And Christ is saying, no, no, no. I want you to have the right view of things. I want you to see my kingdom. I want you to see the pathway that I model for you. Because that's the only way, ultimately, you're going to be happy. When we think about cultivating meekness, we also need to think about what are the specific promises of God? You can't hope for something, you can't see the big picture of something if you don't know the specifics. The only way you can know the promises of God is if you're reading his word, if you're listening to what he says. You can't trust promises you don't know. And Christians, we need to be thinking about the promises of God. What does God say is coming? How does God say we get there? How does God say that we should be living now if we want to have joy and peace? You, you're not going to know what to do if you don't know what he said. Which is why we need to have a proper understanding of God's promises and his timing. There are so many false teachings out there that take what God has said out of context. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of the prosperity gospel or health or wealth preaching, however you want to talk about it, where they take things that are said in Scripture, but they screw up the timing. Like, we're, we're, this is not heaven on earth right now. Our expectations should not be to be rich, healthy, and everything go our way if we're faithful, if we give enough. Our hope is that, no, in the world to come, in, which, when, in a place in where everything is, it will be as it's supposed to, that's when the majority of the promises Christ bought for us will be realized. You need to understand God's promises, but you need to know their timing as well. Because otherwise, that could be great harm. And Satan loves doing that. I mean, when Satan even came and tempted Christ, he quoted scripture. He just took it out of context. It's no surprise when Satan's servants do the same. So we need to be keeping God's promises in mind. We need to understand the timing. And as you do that, meekness is enabled in you. You can endure hardship if you know, okay, at the other side of this, there's heaven. And things will be better there. And all the suffering that I endure now, Christ isn't going to forget that. That's our hope ultimately. Furthermore, if you want to be a meek person, you have to get used to the idea of dying to self. Think of in Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says this, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Sin says that you'll only be happy so long as you get what you want when you want it. If you can get that, then you'll be happy. And Jesus is saying that's not the way to be happy. The way to be happy is to follow after me. And the way I live, the way I served my people was I laid myself down. I gave up rights that I deserved for the sake of my people. That's how Christ loved us and we're supposed to imitate him. There's a, a quote that I really love. Uh, I don't even remember where I, I read it, but um, it stuck with me. It says, There are resurrections we have not known because there are deaths we were unwilling to die. 
And there, are, there is a rhythm in the Christian life of dying to self and experiencing a refreshing grace of God in new life. And as you die to self, you experience more of this grace. And it's kind of this cascading thing going upward. The more you're willing to die to self, the more of the grace of God you experience. So just think about, this is why when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, it's because the more you die to self, the more you're committed to the glory of God instead of your own, as you do that, I'm going to give you more of me. You're going to enjoy more of me. And if we're convinced by that, that'll make us want more. That'll make us more willing to be meek, more willing to lay ourselves down, more willing to be patient because we're convinced about the goodness of God. So just some final applications I want to draw out, just in light of all this, in terms of the need to be meek. Christians need to be more concerned about our mission than our rights. I think that's a really important piece. Christians need to be more concerned about our mission than our rights. This is uh, from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 9, or 5 through 9. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Notice the pattern there. Jesus had a right to claim all the privileges of deity, but he said, I'm going to lay that aside for the sake of the mission, for the sake of saving the people of God. And because of that, God says, I bestow on you the name above every other name. That's the rhythm. Dying to self, submitting to God, trusting in God, trusting in his plan, and in so doing, God changes you and God blesses you. It doesn't necessarily mean material blessing, but you're going to know more of God. And that is eternal life, that you know God. And finally, Christians need to let some battles go in order to win the war. You need to pick your battles wisely. Jesus let a lot of things go, a lot of things slide. People who defamed him, people who mocked him, he let a lot of things go. But there's some things he wouldn't let go. He was committed to getting to that cross because that was the only way God's people would be saved. Jesus went into the temple and cleansed it out because it was unspeakable to think of people having a wrong view of God. But Jesus chose his battles wisely. And I, I mentioned this earlier, but Christians are at their best when they are fighting for others to know the grace of God. When we're consumed fighting for people to know how influential we are, how powerful we are, how smart we are, we're, we're missing the picture. We're getting distracted. But if we're saying, hey, if mocking me and you putting all that pressure on me gives me a platform to speak the truth about Christ, I'll take it. Because we have the big picture in mind. We're pushing forward with this plan of what God is doing in the world. Drawing all people to himself by submitting to Christ. That needs to be our commitment. So if we're going to claim we are enjoying and participating in the kingdom of God, then we do need to love Jesus Christ enough to follow him. And that means embracing meekness, just as he did. Pray with me. Father God,